By the 1960s, there were very few achievements that Joe Kirkwood Jr. couldn't claim with distinction. He'd been both a successful actor in the Joe Palooka film series and a world-renowned athlete on the PGA Tour. He'd even been married to a young Hollywood starlet by the name of Kathy Downs. And as a resident of Southern California, he enjoyed a comfortable retirement in one of the most gorgeous parts of the world. By any measure, he had acquired and accomplished more than most Americans could ever dream of. But for all his success, there were still two things missing from Joe Kirkwood's life, a fish factory and his own private island. And in 1966, he set out to check both off his bucket list. His gaze was set on the Cortez Bank, a small strip of land just below the surface of the water about a hundred miles off the California coast. Kirkwood wanted to establish an artificial island with the bank serving as its foundation. From there he planned to establish an independent nation where he could build a seafood processing plant and run his new business beyond the reach of American tax collectors. The island would be named Abalonia after the abalone mussels that were once bountiful to the region. To bring his business plan to life, he assembled a team that could have been taken straight from a heist movie, including a professional diver, a savings and loan executive, the owner of a rock quarry, and the son of a Mexican president. His plan? Purchase a massive cargo ship from World War II, sink it over the Cortez Bank, surround it with boulders from the rock quarry, and fill in the gaps with garbage from the L.A. Waste Department. Now at this point, if you aren't familiar with the great nation of Abalonia, you're probably beginning to see why. Kirkwood's idea didn't quite play out the way he drew it up on paper, because for all his success in entertainment and sports, Joe was a poor planner, and an even worse architect. In his desperation to ensure that the mission was properly funded, Joe had actually sold off parts of the ship, including chains, ropes, and anchors that would be vital for securing his new island in place. So when he arrived at the bank and began to sink the freighter, he was shocked to realize there was very little holding it there. Soon after, in what should have been a surprise to no one, the ship succumbed to the choppy waves around the Cortez Bank, and the USS Abalonia was pushed into the sea. And with that, the young nation of Abalonia, like the great city of Atlantis before it, was cut down in its prime and delivered a watery doom. Joe Kirkwood might have met the same fate at the bottom of the ocean were it not for the good fortune that he had brought two ships on his pilgrimage. So on November 15, 1966, instead of planting a flag on his would-be kingdom and christening this new land in the name of tax-free lobster, Joe Kirkwood was forced to sail away, perhaps realizing at that moment that his dream was less abalone than it was just baloney. Welcome to the Political Podcast, Policy in a Golden State of Mind. My name is Tony Mostria, and thank you for joining me on part two of our statehood celebration. This month, California celebrated its 165th birthday. That's 165 years that California has been a state, and 100 years since it became old enough to start receiving Medicare. And as much as I love this state, it badly needs a checkup once in a while. 
One such dysfunction for which it seems there is no prescription is our insatiable desire to keep forming more states. California was admitted to the Union on September 9, 1850, and since that very date, there have been over 200 attempts to split up the state, some of them pretty serious. Last week we talked about how California became a state and how its first decade of existence was basically a series of attempts to reverse that decision. This includes a bill by Assemblyman Andres Pico in 1859 to split the state in half, north and south. A proposal that actually passed the legislature was signed by the governor and received the support of 75% of voters. And the only reason that bill never went into effect is that the federal government, which needed to approve it, was dealing with its own secession problems at the time. We also talked about the almost state of Jefferson and the Wairika Rebellion of 1941 that almost created it. That's the story of when four counties in southern Oregon and northern California declared they were fed up with being ignored by state leaders and decided they were forming their own government instead. That is, until we were attacked at Pearl Harbor and the rest of America decided we had bigger things to deal with. Since the 1850s, California has had no shortage of separation attempts and evidently, no shortage of wars to keep them in check. So today we're going to cover some of our more modern attempts at secession, and more fundamentally than that, we're going to talk about why some Californians want to secede in the first place, and what effects that decision might have. In terms of seriousness, most of California's 200 secession attempts are closer to the Wairika Rebellion than they are to Pico's proposal of 1859. But no matter how quirky or quixotic they seem, there are legitimate questions that underlie each of them. Often these are concerns that pertain to the nature of our democracy itself and our ability to abide by our professed ideals. As easy as it is to make fun of these campaigns, and believe me, we're still going to make fun of them, in the end it's important to understand why they arise in the first place and thereby be empathetic to the people who initiate them. Even the story of Abalonia, as blissfully bizarre as it is, ultimately served a practical purpose in our government. At the time, it wasn't actually clear from a legal perspective if constructing a country in international waters violated any domestic or transnational laws. This question was working its way through the courts at the time, after developers on the other side of the country tried to do the same thing off the coast of Florida. And we wouldn't have a definitive answer to this ambiguity until 1970, when the courts ruled in the case of U.S. v. Ray. Not only was this practice of nautical nation-building illegal in the navigable waters of the United States, but the incident would eventually contribute to the creation of the International Law of the Sea, which dictates questions over artificial islands and maritime jurisdiction to this day. The reasons that Californians have cited for secession are as diverse as the states they've tried to create. Joe Kirkwood was obviously doing it for financial reasons, with a dash of celebrity eccentricity sprinkled in, but most of those striving for statehood possess loftier ideals, even if their campaigns are primarily protest statements with no meaningful chance of securing independence. The most common sentiment they express is the notion that they aren't being heard. Whatever group they represent, they're firmly in the minority of political power and see their elected leaders running roughshod over their concerns. This was the case with Southern Californians in the 1800s and with Northern Californians in the 1900s, when citizens of the state of Jefferson included a literal double cross in their state seal. And Californians have been divided in this way along more than just geographic lines. The specter of secession has also been raised as a tool by community leaders with otherwise little voice in the state's halls of power. 
For example, some members of California's Hispanic community began calling for secession in the 1960s in response to their poor treatment and paltry representation by government at the time. Advocates sought the creation of a new nation in the American Southwest, called Aslan. Named after the ancestral homeland of the Aztec people, Aslan was based on the territory that had been acquired from Mexico during the Mexican-American War. After appealing unsuccessfully to the United Nations for international recognition, members of the movement began occupying areas across the region. This includes a group of so-called Brown Berets who seized Catalina Island off the California coast in 1972, and actually held the island for nearly four weeks before they were asked to leave. Whether citizens of Aztlan truly believed they could achieve statehood, they were serious in their demands for respect and representation. And thanks to the state's expanding Latino population and the budding success of related advocacy efforts, like the farm workers' rights movement, the influence of California's Hispanic community gradually did begin to grow, causing the desire for outright secession to fade from most people's priorities. In a similar occurrence in 1969, roughly 100 American Indian protesters took over Alcatraz Island, site of the infamous former prison complex in the San Francisco Bay. Opposing California's treatment of its native population, activists demanded the deed to the island, as well as the establishment of an Indian university and cultural center there. In an effort to avoid appearing unsympathetic or heavy-handed, government officials took a relatively hands-off approach to the occupation. As a result, the demonstration lasted nearly 18 months before the dwindling remainder of protesters was gently removed in 1971. While the Alcatraz activists never stood a realistic chance of acquiring the island, their efforts are nonetheless credited with serving as a catalyst for other positive developments in U.S. tribal relations. This includes the return of tens of thousands of acres of Indian land, as well as the creation of one of the first Native American universities in our nation's history, though not on Alcatraz Island as protesters initially demanded. And perhaps most importantly, the demonstration helped highlight, in vivid and visceral detail, the suffering of the state's native population, generating a broader awareness and a greater appreciation of the issues afflicting them. Sometimes groups want to secede not because they feel left out, but because they'd rather be left alone. In 1975, the author Ernest Kallenbach published the book Ecotopia, a novel in which the Pacific Northwest voluntarily isolates itself from the rest of the country. This fictional nation was based on a real set of principles at the time called bioregionalism, a 1970s outgrowth of the environmental movement emphasizing ecology, equality, and local culture and commerce. Ecotopia turned out to be more prophetic than Kallenbach likely anticipated and spurred a modern movement for Northwest independence. Today the region, and hypothetical new nation, is called Cascadia, and encompasses much of Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Northern California, Southern Alaska, and British Columbia. Cascadia even has its own flag, named the Doug, after the Douglas fir tree that graces the front of it, as well as an active community of proponents who serve as self-appointed ambassadors of the region. What's interesting here is that despite the strength of the Cascadian identity, there haven't been any serious attempts at Cascadian statehood, at least not in the modern day. This may be attributable to the fact that most metro areas in the hypothetical superstate, including Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver, already embody the bioregional principles that Kallenbach outlined four decades ago, in which case independence may not seem like much of a necessity. 
And that brings us back to California, where the desire for separation is often anything but symbolic. Even today, many Californians feel they still aren't being heard by state leaders. Just as Southern Californians claimed over a century ago, and Northern Californians claimed eight decades ago, and community leaders claimed 50 years ago, some Californians today believe the only effective remedy to their present neglect is to leave the state altogether. And this sentiment is often harnessed to advance ideas that may not benefit these residents at all. Just last year, in 2014, venture capitalist Tim Draper announced he was placing an initiative on the ballot to carve California into six separate pieces. If approved, these states would have been partitioned roughly the way we already envision California. Jefferson would encompass the rural north of the state, Central California would make up the agricultural interior, South California would include the border and desert regions like San Diego and San Bernardino, West California would occupy LA and the Central Coast. North California would receive Sacramento and the Upper Bay Area, and Silicon Valley, Tim Draper's homeland, would get Silicon Valley, including San Francisco and San Jose. Draper's stated motivation for advancing the initiative was that California was ungovernable in its current form and could operate better if it were sliced into smaller, more manageable jurisdictions. This is another theme that rises to the surface every time the notion of secession comes up. California is too big. Its problems are too complex, and the only way to fix our beloved state is to break it and start over. On the surface, it's an easy argument to accept, and it's not hard to see why it's so compelling to supporters. Our state is big, and our issues are complex, and it's not completely inconceivable that some sort of managed breakup could be a sensible resolution at some point in the future. Other states have separated four times throughout our nation's history, so while it's a rare occurrence, it's not completely far fetched, and California wouldn't be the first to do it. But if I could step very briefly into an editorial role, when it comes to our current problems and the belief that division is a catch all for solving them, I don't buy it. Writing off California because it's too big or too complex means equivalently writing off the 33 other countries that are larger than we are. With economies just as diverse and issues just as daunting, including Italy, France, Germany, China, the United Kingdom, and the U.S. itself. Resigning oneself to the conviction that California is too big to be fixed is an unspoken admission that no nation larger than 40 million residents can operate a viable democracy for its people. It's absurd, and it's worth pointing out that Californians made the same argument in 1850. When the total population was just 100,000 people. Today, that number wouldn't even register in the top 50 cities in our state alone, so I'm not convinced that separation is our only hope of redemption. When it comes to facing our state's problems, I think we have an obligation to leave every option on the table, but I don't consider the reflexive separatism that some advocates appear to possess to be a constructive part of that process. And with that, let's return to the story of six Californias. Although Draper's proposal was initially approved by California's Secretary of State, it failed to attract the minimum number of signatures needed to qualify for the ballot. And even if the idea were allowed to move forward, it's far from clear that Californians would embrace it anyway. In a public opinion poll from December 2013, only 25% of respondents said they'd favor some form of separation. And according to the study, that broad opposition to breaking up extends to every part of the state, even the comparatively secession friendly areas around the old state of Jefferson. 
And perhaps it's for the best that we never got to see six Californias in action, since it probably would have had some abrupt and imposing effects on the region. The first disputes to arise would likely have to do with shared resources and shared obligations. For example, the six states of California would immediately push to renegotiate their water rights, shattering a series of complicated interstate agreements and dragging every state in the Colorado River Basin back to the drawing board, including Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. The state would also be forced to reallocate its prison population, since most inmates originate from dense metro areas to go live in prisons in sparse rural areas. And I think I speak for everyone when I say that I don't even want to consider how California would go about redistributing its $260 billion debt. While six Californias could eventually resolve these differences, the most striking effects of separation would be long-term and fall hardest on those least able to cope with them. Instantaneously, a divided California would create the nation's richest and poorest states. Silicon Valley would possess an average annual income of $63,000, higher than all 50 states, while the state of Central California would possess an average income of just over $33,000, lower than all 50 states. In addition, average property values would be twice as high in Silicon Valley as they are in Central California, and per capita taxable sales would be one-fourth higher as well. The concern here isn't merely that residents of California's poorer areas would have a comparatively lower quality of life. That disparity with wealthier areas already exists and would likely continue regardless of how we divide up the state. Rather, the concern is that places like Central California wouldn't even have the resources to advance their own opportunities. Larger incomes means more revenue from income taxes. Higher property values means more revenue from property taxes and greater sales means more revenue from sales taxes. All of these components allow our public services to function, and often the more we contribute, the better they work. Areas like Silicon Valley would be flush with cash from all of these sources, and would hold no obligation to send any beyond its borders, even to its old neighbors in the interior of the state. As it stands, public programs like education and social services are subsidized by wealthier parts of the state. Those who have more are asked to give more. That way, those who have less can enjoy the same simple necessities of life. That's the way it should be, because that's the social contract we've agreed to as members of a compassionate, democratic society. And the instant we sever our ties to the state, we sever ourselves from that basic agreement. So any separation proposal we face ought to be considered not only in the context of what lines we can draw, but also in terms of what lives we affect. And that brings our story full circle, back to the state of Jefferson, where the drive to secede never quite disappeared. On September 3, 2013, the Siskiyou County Board of Supervisors, the very heart of the once great state of Jefferson, voted in favor of seceding again. On September 23, 2013, the Modoc County Board of Supervisors, representing the northeast corner of our state, did likewise. On January 21, 2014, Glen County announced its support, followed by Yuba County and Sutter County. On June 4th of last year, voters in Tayama County voted 56% in favor of leaving California, and both Lake and Lassen counties are voting on this same question next year. It could easily turn out that this contemporary call for Jeffersonian secession turns out the same way the last one did. 
But regardless of whether the effort succeeds, the implications are serious nonetheless. In all likelihood, today's state of Jefferson would face many of the same problems as the state of Central California. Currently, Jefferson residents receive more in public services than they contribute in public revenue, which isn't to say that they aren't entitled to those services, only that this reality makes financial viability seem much less attainable. In addition, public employees comprise a substantial portion of the Jefferson workforce, and if Jefferson severs its ties with state government, it's likely that many of those jobs would vanish, putting the region's economy in jeopardy as well. Even if every county in the north of the state votes to secede, it's almost certain that lawmakers wouldn't allow it to happen. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't listen or work to find a mutual solution instead. Unlike their predecessors, Jefferson residents no longer complain about roads. Instead, they're concerned with water rights, property protections, firearm legislation, and regulations imposed by a distant state capital. They feel their leaders don't represent them, that their decisions don't take their concerns into account, and that the actions of their government don't align with their needs. Most of all, they feel they aren't being heard, a sentiment that seemingly never burned out even eight decades after the first spark was lit. That's our show. Thank you for joining me on part two of our statehood celebration. I hope you enjoyed both episodes because I had a blast putting them together. Before we go, I have one quick, very exciting announcement to share. The Political Podcast has a new web address, which I think makes us a real website. From now on, the show can be found at politicalpod.org. So much simpler than before. That's politicalpod.org. As a disclaimer, you should know that all the previous links we sent out still work, and you can still reach the site through our old Blogspot address, if that's what you have saved in your browser. But from now on, everything will redirect to the .org address. Why .org, you might ask? Well, first, because .com was taken. Second, when was the last time you found a .net address that looked legitimate? And third, I thought it would be appropriate to have the same type of domain that's usually associated with nonprofit organizations, because this is a nonprofit organization in the most literal sense of the phrase. We may not be helping people, but rest assured we are also not making any money for it. If you haven't done so already, remember to subscribe to the show using your favorite podcast app, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And keep the conversation going on social media. You can like our podcast page at facebook.com slash politicalpod and follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both at politicalpod. That's everything I have to say. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next week.